If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Today I'm talking with my old college buddy, Sam Morgan, who plays a kind of classic form of country music under the moniker Sam Outlaw. Outlaw is actually his late mother's maiden name. We talk about her a little bit today. If you'd like to hear a sample, I would recommend the song Ghost Town, which Josh will put a link in the show notes to that song on Spotify. But this episode is not about music. It's about how Sam, who grew up similarly evangelical to me, also in California, has found a new application of some of the elements of his younger faith, namely utilizing some kind of spirituality in the service of maintaining sobriety from alcoholism. We also hear his overall story, which includes some pretty rough interactions with a parachurch organization in college and a Southern California evangelical church after college. Now, 12-step abstinence-focused approaches to alcohol and other substance use issues are not the only game in town, 
For instance, there's also medication-assisted programs and other programs that would fit under the heading of harm reduction as opposed to total abstinence. But we also know that 12-step programs really work for a lot of people, and we know some about why they work, which I get into later on with Sam. I'm also, of course, particularly interested in the way that 12-step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous utilize spirituality language, higher power language, and these kind of concepts toward helping people reach their goal of abstinence. Anyway, plenty of interesting stuff in my conversation today with Sam, who's also a very funny person, one of the reasons I wanted to get him on. So thanks for listening. And you know, it's great when you share these episodes. So you probably have an idea of someone in your life that might appreciate this episode, especially as you hear a bit, if it's going to resonate with someone, uh, someone else who's maybe interested in in those connections between spirituality uh, and substance use issues. So, all right, let's hop in. I've been sort of wanting an excuse to to get you on the mic because I really enjoy talking with you and I also enjoy having excuses to connect with old friends. But this recent kind of thing that you've been posting about and that we've texted about a little bit, just finally it's kind of right right down the pipe for me. Mm. The way I'm seeing this is that there are basically two storylines to track here. There is the religion and then maybe eventually what we'll call spirituality track. And then there is the alcohol use track. So let's start with religion and spirituality, I would assume, because that's going to be a part of your life earlier than alcohol is a part of your life, unless there's maybe family stuff with alcohol that that you want to get into. But but tell us about, you know, those first 18 years or whatever. What do we need to know about either of these storylines? Well, first of all, I was raised in a pretty typical like 80s, 90s evangelical Christian home. We kind of would skip around to maybe different denominations. Like I remember at one time being in Assemblies of God Church, another time being in a Baptist. I also think it's worth noting that even though I was raised in San Diego amongst Californians, which are not normal people, I was born <laughs> in the Midwest among normal American people. And I, that's all in quotes with X, you know, uppercase letters. So my dad is a one of nine kids raised on a farm by an alcoholic. His dad was in a pretty a life-threatening version of the illness. And so I grew up not only in the church, both in the Midwest and then in California, but also certainly in a household where alcohol was just not present. Like whatever thing I could complain about with my childhood, I am grateful that there was just no booze in our house. But as like everything, there's unintended consequences to the good thing. I remember one time when I was maybe 10 or 11 being at my friend's house, and uh, going to get something out of his refrigerator, open up the refrigerator and seeing that his dad, who was my baseball coach, like little league baseball coach, had like a six pack of Budweiser and seeing that beer immediately signaled to me like, this is a bad guy. Hmm. Look out for this guy. He probably beats his wife and just all of these sort of very extreme, intense. And by the way, I'm not saying that's like a direct result of my dad. Yeah, I was wondering, that, where did you get that? Where, where do you think you got that assumption? You know, Church, parents? What? I was I was really terrified by what I saw on TV, a yeah. really influential movie when I was a kid called Radio Flyer with Elijah Wood and a kid from Jurassic Park. It depicts the father as this alcoholic, physically abusive parent. And Dan, you might even remember this. Like, I feel like even when we were in college, there was kind of this unspoken slash maybe sometimes spoken thing of like, 
when you're 21, even if you can drink, by you having a drink publicly, you are potentially causing other people to stumble. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because because yes. one one drink kind of represents that you are just drinking and drinking is sort of a path to destruction. Yeah, I'm familiar with that line of thinking. I have good friends and loved ones who grew up in households that employed that reasoning and explained that to their children. Yeah. My parents didn't. They were like, yeah, we have wine and or beer sometimes, but they yeah. just didn't have that much of it. But they didn't, they weren't worried about the causing others to stumble. And by the way, if you haven't heard that phrase before, bless your heart. But it's some version of a, a letter, you know, a, a verse in Paul, my wife's pastor growing up, for instance, he would, I, I think the word is maybe brag. <laughs> he would declare that he wouldn't even purchase root beer in glass bottles, canned root beer. This is back when beer was, now it's like flipped around uh, and beer is always in cans because of, mm -hmm. you know, for whatever reasons. But back then beer was mostly in bottles and he would only get like the dad's root beer in the can, not the bottle, lest right. someone think he was walking out of the grocery store with beer because yep. that can, would then ruin his witness or whatever. I would, I very much was raised with that way of thinking that yeah. You were you as a Christian were a like a door to door rep for Christ and for exactly. the entirety, entirety of the Christian religion. Like my parents would say to me when I was seven years old and eight years old before I would go to school, my mom and I, I for the most part, I actually appreciate what she was trying to do here. But I was raised literally being told and by literally, I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say my mom would say, remember that you are the only Jesus that some kids will ever see. Yeah. So that's kind of, of a, it's a lot of, to put on like a six or a seven year old shoulders that you are a, are a rep for essentially salvation. And so your behavior and your choices will dramatically affect the behavior and choices of those around you. It makes me think of the guilt of not, witnessing to whoever sat next to me on the flight oh, yeah. because that might be the only shot they get. I mean, their blood is on your hands, Dan, as they spend an eternity <laughs> burning in hell. I'm looking for the, the mean I'm looking for the golden mean here between, well, what kids do doesn't matter at all. Just play, have fun right, I mean, at a right. certain age. Of course that's true. But as you get older, maybe into adolescence and stuff like, the idea of like sort of taking your life seriously, taking your choices seriously, that you have some level of responsibility, not the same as adults have. Mm. I think that there's something really good there. I mean, it makes me think of the the research around what is called nurturant parenting. Mm. Very short digression here. Like permissive parenting is like you have like high warmth for your children, but low expectations and authoritarian mm. or authoritative parenting is you have low warmth and high expectations, mm. but ideally you have nurturant, which is high expectations, but high warmth. So mm -hmm. you are asking a lot of your children, but you're also supporting them as they work to fulfill yeah. it. That's kind of, you know, in very broad strokes, sort of the most research backed form of parenting when kids get old enough for that. But you're the only Jesus that some kids will ever see. Or, you know, when I thought I have to minister to this person at 14 years old or on the plane, or they might go to hell for eternity, that's teetering beyond high expectations into really probably something that kids can't really shoulder in a healthy way, I would guess, not yeah. being a, a developmental psych psychologist myself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, I look back on the experience 
and am very grateful that my mom from an early age instilled in me a sense of empathy. The bigger message mm-hmm. that she would te- that she would tell myself and my siblings, it never felt like a heavy handed you're Jesus. So go be Jesus. Exactly. Although that was kind of in the mix. The bigger message that she gave us was if someone's being mean to you at school or someone's hurting you, keep in mind that sometimes people behave that way because they're being hurt at home or their yeah. home life is not good. And so it almost makes me cry when I think about that, because that is something that to this day I try to instill in my boys is just a reminder every once in a while, your experience at home, which is basically, I think I try to aim for that nurturant balance that you just talked about, but they get a lot of love, a lot of kisses, a lot of hugs. And I just try to remind them, man, not everybody has that. And so when someone's acting mean towards you, maybe there's a way you can kind of neutralize that with a little bit of kindness back. And I'm sure that this will land my kids in therapy at some point too. So I'm sure I'm not hitting it exactly on the we'll never, hit, Yeah, we'll never hit the mark. Mm-hmm. I've actually noticed this with my son. We've been doing a lot of Transformers play. And Ooh. the thing that he likes to do, we call a situation, which when I first founded, let's just say the school of play called doing a situation, it was very creative. And I was like trying to get him to problem solve, but it devolved into just this toy is afraid of this toy. And that's always the situation. So there's a lot of Megatron right now as the bad guy. But what I've noticed that my son will do is sometimes we will need to fight Megatron. He's three and a half, by the way. Sometimes we need to fight Megatron. But other times he'll be like, well, they should invite Megatron to play. And that will put him in a better mood. And I'm like, holy shit. So smart. So smart. Yeah. and, And I did not, I don't think that I brought that to him. Like he has picked up on that from whatever he's learned and experienced and, and whatever his teachers are, you know, at preschool are kind of saying to him and whatever his mom and I are saying to him, we could throw a hand grenade at Megatron, but first, why don't we try a quick conversation just to see if maybe that is save us a little time. (laughs) Yeah. Before we, we strap the C4 to our chest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Just to back up and give a little more color to the upbringing before college. So church, I would say made up basically the entirety of our discretionary time. Yeah. And with a heavy focus on spirituality, you know, family members that were involved in trying to cast out demons in other people in the church, Mm. there was a strong focus on being evangelical and spreading the good news. And just like your story about kind of feeling like a tinge of guilt that you would dare deboard the plane without telling your neighbor who somehow has missed it being a white American that he could serve (laughs) Christ. Um, (laughs) I don't know how he could quite make it to nine and not hear the good news. But if this person has somehow not heard about Christ, then yeah, it is your responsibility. So so when I got to college, uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, I'm sure you remember WOW, which is the week of welcome. Or or yeah. sometimes or sometimes kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. orientation week. Sometimes confusingly called Wow Week, which would make it the week of welcome week. Yeah, exactly. What that was, it was a very effective way to teach kids to drink, basically. But you know, you get to the <laughs> dorms, you get thrown into a wow group, which was sort of like an arbitrary group of friends that you would kind of do fun stuff with an old upperclassman. And like for me, because I didn't drink and I didn't go out and party, I think I went to one party on the first or second night kind of with everyone, like followed everyone to the party and just kind of felt gross about it. Like, I just remember it kind of just felt like it was an opportunity for upperclassmen men to prey on the freshman women. And that just, I remember seeing it. Yeah, I could see it serving that function for sure. In fact, I'm pretty sure we just summed up society maybe, but (laughs) we we at least certainly summed up 
my first week in college. So I think I'm lucky in some ways that my appetites were not for that. And I remember when Campus Crusade, I think after WOW, maybe in the first week of actual classes, when they had their first kind of like mixer, you know, but without any drinks, just hanging out. I was so excited to go there and like, now I can start having friends. Like I'm with other Christians and I'm with other people who sort of want to live life on more a spiritual basis, which I still think is an incredibly positive side of any institutionalized religion is folks that have like a generally accepted, we see how you guys are doing it. We don't love it. And we want to try something different. We don't exactly know what it is. So when I got to college, that was where I was coming from. And by the way, the, the empirical research really bears that out. There are a lot of studies specifically of adolescents looking at the kind of risky behaviors that, you know, mm. responsible adults are generally worried that adolescents will take part in binge drinking, risky, unprotected sex, mm-hmm. you know, crime. That one's a little bit mm. tougher because there's an interesting socioeconomic yeah. uh, as well as ethnic layers to that one. But even just the stuff that we're not kind of muddying the waters with that, like religiosity across ethnic groups and even across cultures, it just is a protective factor for young people. Mm -hmm. And I think you and I experienced that exactly. We showed up to a state college where the kind of, you know, the dominant, like, all right, let's shit up. It's our first week here. It's our Mm -hmm. first semester of college. Mm -hmm. And we were Mm -hmm. like, ah, I mean, I used to host a thing. I'm sure you came at least once called Cosby and tea at my house. Yeah. That sounds familiar. Yeah. We we watched the Cosby show. This is again, (laughs) of all the people we could link ourselves to who have been canceled Cosby for the best reason of of any of them. This is of course, before we found out that he was a rapist. Yeah, You you weren't doing it because you were hoping that in the future it would come out that he was a rapist. I think you just liked the show. (laughs) I'm (laughs) waiting for the time when like, Ben Shapiro like tries to reintroduce Cosby as a way of owning the libs or something, but it wasn't that either. So, but like at my house where I lived, they hosted Mm -hmm. keg parties and I would host Cosby and tea. And that was like a kind of a part of my identity. And was that square and dorky? Absolutely. That was not cool, but I got to hang out with my friends. I got to even kind of practice talking and thinking about entertainment and and culture and stuff and build friendships in a way where nobody's going to be hung over. No one's going to do anything they super regret. And so, yeah, I think that we are living examples of sort of what is born out in the research around, you know, young adults and, and And man, I have to say like, I mean, whether or not it's cool, I, I couldn't tell you, I can tell you though, that I think anything, that says we're not going to just take drugs and drink and then consider that a real interaction because we got so lubed up that we can't remember what you're saying. I think there actually is something really subversively cool about that for what it's worth, man. I still think that's kind of a cool move. Yeah. I think uh, it's hard for me to think that anything I was doing at that age was cool in any sort of general (laughs) sense because of the rest of the context. Hey man, I remember you. I, you, I always thought you were cool because you were into music, man. You were a songwriter and you love to do what we're doing right now, which was kind of dig deeper into subjects that interest. I mean, you, it's funny. I mean, I had probably haven't, I almost haven't talked to you in 20 years, Dan. I mean, it's maybe been like 17. Yeah. You're, you're, I think still very much the person that you were back then, a very thoughtful person who just kind of refuses to say, oh, that's how it is. Great. No problem. I'll just do that now. So anyway, you can cut that out if you want, but I I think that you are still that person. 
you don't know me very well if you think I'm going to cut that out. I'm I'm leaving in, <laughs> leaving in any kind words. Yeah, uh, but there is something interesting about that in that we can kind of bring that back to the story, which is you know now I'm 40 and I think you're probably 41 or whatever. Mm-hmm. 41. And like we were 18 to 22. Yeah. Uh, in those years, we do keep a lot of those personality traits. What I'm wondering for you is what did you, what do you see when you look back at yourself that age mm-hmm. that then is going to kind of follow through in this story uh, mm. toward, you know, eventual alcohol use and sobriety and all that stuff? Yeah. Oh, uh, man, I see. It's so funny because my wife and I were just kind of talking about this morning as I, I, I showed her a little bit about your page and what it is that you've been studying. And she's just kind of really fascinated by that stuff. I think I can speak for her and say what the bone that she has to pick with religion that a lot of folks, I feel like, is this notion that we are of original sin, Mm -hmm. that we're sort of like born bad. And uh, one of the sayings that we have in the sobriety rooms is we are all here not because we are bad people trying to be made good, but that we are sick people trying to be made well. And to back up, man, I think I was raised, first of all, again, with maybe an outsized view of myself. I was the oldest kid in my family. I was the firstborn. And so I also have an older half-brother, but he's so much older that he wasn't around a lot. So like all the typical firstborn stuff was all placed on me. So it was, Sam, you're a leader. Don't forget you're a leader. Not only are you a leader because you're a Christian, but you're a leader because you're the oldest. And if you say that, your sister's going to say that word. If you say that, then your brother's going to do it. If you do this, they're going to do it. So there was very much this just real intense focus put on if you do something, everyone's going to do it, which, you know, I do think there is such a thing as someone having quote unquote leadership abilities. I don't know how wise it is though, to put the focus at that level at that age. And then also I think going into what made me who I was as an 18 year old going into campus crusade was just the Christian worldview of that moment, which was like the book, the purpose driven life, you know, it's, that was the zeitgeist and books like every man's battle where it was this like conflicting messaging of you are incredible. And you're part of this incredible, like end times sort of Marvel comic level, uh, world saving, uh, regime. Oh, but also you shouldn't masturbate because then you're going to die. You know, so it was like very confusing that we were both part of this incredible, like unfaltering God squad, also jerking off in the shower before you go to class. You're probably going to go to hell. So, yeah, it was I think it was just really mixed messages. Again, I don't think any of the people that were involved in these books. So, again, the ones that I remember, like I remember before I went to college, my parents had us listen to the audiobook. The book was called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Yeah, Joshua Harris. Joshua Harris, who I think had very good intentions in his writing, as as did the authors for these other books. I think that there was a lot of good intentions and probably a lot of really flavorful truth mixed into some like misguided stuff. But all of it, like Dan, I was 18 years old lying in my dorm at Cal Poly, Sierra Madre, Tower One, Floor Three, Room F. <laughs> Till two or three in the morning, soberly, you know, no booze in me, lying awake in bed, literally having a question, the existential question, what is the point 
of even being here. Because if the whole purpose of my life is to bring glory to God, then I should probably be doing what Mother Teresa did, give up all my possessions, like move to Calcutta and take care of orphans and widows. Mm -hmm. And honestly, based on the worldview that I was being raised in, I think that's actually kind of a logical place to end up. It's, well, if you if we all really believe these things that we say we're believing, then why am I going to a class about, you know, engineering or why am I what's the point of all this stuff? Well, I think, at, incidentally, the zeitgeist among younger Christians was not so much purpose driven life. And it was more like Shane Claiborne, Irresistible Revolution. Mm. And he was essentially arguing for that. And he had done that in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And mm. is still doing stuff like that, living, you know, I, as far as I know, lives in a commune with other sort of vow of poverty Christians. And like that was, you know, this is also the time of invisible children yeah. and, you know, not the Coney 2012 or whatever year that was sort of big public thing. But the initial I was invited to go so that and that film was made by my best friend, Bobby Bailey. Uh, had he, had, yeah, I didn't want to. I didn't want to out that. I don't, I don't know what you want to talk about with all of that. Oh yeah. no, I mean, I, I still, I still think that what they were going for and much of what they did was extremely positive, and it just has a, kind of a wild ride afterwards. But I want to do real quick dance theology corner. You mentioned your wife and her bone to pick around original sin, and sort of we're not, you know, we're not evil people. We're sick people mm -hmm. trying to be made well. That is actually how Eastern Orthodox theology thinks about the church. It mm. describes the church as a hospital mm. and that essentially like you, you engage in the Christian life, you engage in services and Eucharist and liturgy and, and prayers and all that stuff, because that is the treatment for human yeah. beings who necessarily are broken. And this mm. is like the best, you know, it's, this is the best healthcare regimen for your spirit that has been developed over a couple thousand years. And I have just always thought that was a pretty good analogy and doesn't feel particularly toxic. Of course, you could have some, you can still within that have somebody who stands up and says, well, I have a miracle cure, you know, sure. or some shit. But uh, the structure of, of something like orthodoxy or Episcopalianism or Catholicism is such that those people can't really stay within that system. You know, that's the benefit of the hierarchy. But anyway, mm -hmm. I just... Okay, thus ends Dan Theology Corner. That's cool. Okay, Sam, so you had an interesting experience of parachurch organization discipline, not yeah. church discipline, because Campus Crusade is not a church, uh, your senior year of college. Tell us about that. Yeah. So first of all, when I got into Campus Crusade, I was in some ways right off the bat kind of, um, I remember someone Making not it wasn't a literal comment, but um, they said something like, "Man, you're my." This was when I was a freshman. They said, "Yeah, Sam, you're kind of like the poster boy for Campus Crusade." They literally used the phrase "poster boy." It was someone yeah. in leadership, and it's because I was helping to lead a Bible study. At some point, I started playing in the worship band, and then going into my senior year, I was invited by the campus director to be on their core leadership, which is they basically pick like ten or twelve, probably twelve because there's twelve disciples. 12 students to help quote unquote lead the quote unquote movement. Yeah. I remember the director sitting me down to say that they want to have me do this and kind of inviting me in him saying, you know, Sam, I've heard, I, I kind of see you as a little bit of a troublemaker. He almost made it sound like, I don't know if I should be doing this, but I'm offering you this leadership position. <laughs> and by the way, whatever mistakes were made that, that I get into here by these people, these leadership people, 
I see them as still some of the best people I've ever known. So yeah. kind, so compassionate, genuinely trying their guts out to do what they thought was right. So I just want to color all of what I'm about to say with that. So going in, so going in my senior year, I'm more involved than ever. I'm helping to lead a Bible study. I am in the worship band every week, which was helpful for me to kind of learn how to play my guitar a little better. I still am thankful for that. And then I was in this core leadership, which was like kind of a big deal. Because as you pointed out, Dan, it's not like a normal college where maybe you've got 20,000 people and maybe there's 100 people a week in this like nerdy Bible club. Right. This was like the, I would say almost definitive social club on campus. Yeah. At that point, 17,000 students plus a few thousand at the community college, some of whom would show up. So call it 20 and a thousand of them are there every week. I'm almost positive there were no clubs or anything of the type that were bigger than that at our school. State school, not a Christian school. That's right. This was a very big and very influential social club on campus. Yeah. Yeah. My senior year, basically, I had sex with my ex-girlfriend. And I was like, do I even say what it was? And I'm like, yeah, why not? It's so I had sex with my ex-girlfriend. I did not disclose this moral failure to my mentor because for the first week, I was afraid that she was pregnant. And I remember thinking, before I tell anyone about this, I need to first find out if she's pregnant. And but this is another problem too, is when you raise kids on abstinence. Yes. They don't really know how it works. This would be a whole other show. This could be a whole other show. But just telling someone the best way to practice safe sex is abstinence. And so you know what? Just try really hard to not have sex and you'll probably be successful. I was unsuccessful. I actually, (laughs) I I failed at not having sex. Yeah. And I had sex with my ex-girlfriend. So my mentor sits me down and he was on staff at Campus Crusade. And I remember he sat me down with this really disappointed, sort of very grave demeanor. And he says, uh, you know, Sam, I know about what happened with you and this person. And I said, oh, okay. Well, how would you like to proceed? He said, well, you're going to have to be disciplined. You know, he said, you know, first of all, you're supposed to tell me. And I explained to him, I said, well, first of all, I didn't want to tell you because it involved someone else. And I really didn't see how I could possibly tell you what was going on without sort of involving another person who's, this is not mine to tell for them. Yeah. Very interesting ethical issues around the way that the, yeah. they prefer to this structure to go, but we'll just let that, we'll let that pass for now. Also, I just found out today that we're in the clear, that we're not having a baby. And so I've been under a little bit of pressure, pal, and I appreciate you wanting to get straight to the discipline. But if it's okay with you, I've been a little bit involved in the family planning element of this. Oh, my gosh. But long story short is then all the focus becomes on what are we going to do to Sam to discipline him? Because he did something wrong. So I was asked to step down. Well, I was made to step down from the band. I was told that if I wanted to continue serving in my Bible study, then I had to tell my Bible study members, which were all, you know, underclassmen. They were two years younger than me. I had to explain to them why I was stepping down from leadership and what I'd done. So I had to confess to them what I had done. And I also was removed from core leadership for a quarter. And But because it happened to be the last quarter, it, I was going to be removed and obviously never returned because I, that was the it. Right. I think it's important to bring this up because that was basically like my send off. I dedicated four years of my life to this club. 
countless hundreds of volunteer hours, Dan, hundreds and hundreds of hours and time to get myself to this club, to a cause that I believed in. It wasn't just selfish, you know, me wanting to flirt with girls on a Wednesday night, although that was a nice benefit. I really believed in the cause and I was, I really wanted it to be better. I even remember, I think at my first core meeting, the first get together of core leadership, and they kind of asked if anyone had anything they want to talk about. And my suggestion was, Hey, have you guys ever thought about changing the name? Because I don't think having the word, I don't think having the word crusade in our club, in our club name is great marketing for associating ourselves with perhaps the single most shameful moment of Christian history. Yeah. Which by the way, years later, hilariously, they did change the name. And do you know what it's called now? Yeah. It's just crew. It's called crew. So they They still kept a head scratcher shortened version of the between those two words campus and crusade they still have that connection to again the word crusade i would bet my house that a baby boomer made that decision ultimately (laughs) well ultimately whoever made it again i just okay so anyway i guess and by the way i will remind you too that when word kind of started spreading that i was being disciplined for this First of all, I think it was interesting. The next week at co- at the core group, another male student actually came forward and said, well, if Sam's getting kicked out for having sex with his girlfriend, I have to confess that I'm having sex with my girlfriend. And so that person, I guess, was kicked out. So it kind of almost became a little bit of a domino effect of, yeah. it, tur- it turns out there was uh, maybe even dozens of men having sex with women on that campus, Dan. I'm not wow. sure. There might've been uh, hundreds. Wow. I'll tell you what, uh, I wasn't fucking one of them. <laughs> you were, yeah, well, it, yeah. I think Co- that was as much as much my conscience as access, I would say. You, yeah. <laughs> but well, probably more conscience yeah, because, yeah. oh gosh, well, we, I've done it. I need, it's time, it's about time for another Amen. purity culture episode here on, on the feed, but. You were, you were on stage playing rock songs. If you wanted to get laid, you had a sporting chance. That's for darn sure. But yeah, man, so that was a really strange experience. And I, you know what's funny is I remember my preva- prevailing feeling, not only being shame, but I felt so bad for the leaders that I'd put them in this position that they had to figure out what to do to me. Oh, I remember the the campus director, who I still to this day sort of revere him as like a spiritual Jedi sort of or something. And he was, I mean, you remember the person I'm talking about? He really was, yeah. I thought, a good dude. I really liked this guy. I, I, I really think res- he is a good dude. Yes. Yeah, and I really respected him a lot. And when he kind of came to me in a very loving way to tell me what he was trying to figure out he'd do, he told me how he had to reach out to basically his boss to find out what to do to me. And I just remember being so, just feeling, on top of feeling guilty and ashamed of what I'd done, I remember just feeling so bad for them that they had to go through all this bother to figure out what to do to me. So that was just kind of a really uncomfortable way to end my tenure at Campus Crusade. Yeah. And again, it, I'm, I, I still mostly look back and see a whole bunch of imperfect people just like me who are really doing their darndest to handle a difficult, touchy situation. Sure. sure. But that yeah. that was how things ended for me at Campus Crusade in college. And I think that story is worth sharing. Yeah. I'll just say briefly, so that year you're talking about, that was the year that Sherwood kind of got our shit together. We got our first EP recorded and we, you know, that final quarter. I remember being at um Christmas conference and you, you giving me like a burned disc of your newly recorded tunes and us listening to them in my Jeep and I just really, really yeah. digging it. Yeah. Yeah. But we then set off for our first tour that the summer after that semester or quarter. So 
we were kind of, you know, on our way out. And I, that was my last quarter of, of classes there for a while because of the touring. And that's when I initially dropped out. But, you know, we were just chatting off mic that I apparently was sort of involved in advocating for you to some degree at that point. I also mm-hmm. remember, I think that was the year, it might have been the year before where I was advocating as well that Crusade stopped doing these quote unquote surveys of students, which were thinly veiled. It was a missionary tour. Yeah, tool. Evangelism, yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah, they, yeah, they yeah, was, yeah. It was yeah. an attempt to get into a conversation. It was like, first question, are you going to hell? <laughs> it's like, what do you, we're conducting a survey about students' beliefs about God That's you know, what or was. whatever. Yep. Yep. But yep. the thing is, nobody was really conducting a survey. And so there no. was a deceit at the heart of it. And then later, they well, we are collecting the answers. But like, of course, there was no like, Crusade had not hired a data scientist. Not a lot of analysis on the back end. Yeah. <laughs> Use like best practice research methods to learn something. It was just a way to get in the door. And and I objected to there being deceit at the heart of it. It was an elaborate pickup line. It's a pickup line for Jesus. Yeah. 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 So there there were some problems that and, you know, so I think we kind of in terms of our trajectories out of there, yours was much more propulsive and kind of they push pushed you out. I was also kind of exiting sort of ideologically as well as dropping out of school to to tour. But okay, that's interesting. So so then you went to LA and you got into like marketing and whatnot before you got the Sam Outlaw music career going. Yeah. So tell us about the LA area years. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, I remember graduating from college with a marketing degree and an English degree and just you know, I, I'd kind of started to take myself a little more seriously as a songwriter, but I saw other folks like uh, you and Nate and the guys in your band. And then, you know, friends like Josh Cheater and Push Game and these cool bands in college. And I, I remember just being like, these guys are real musicians. Like they know how to play like legit chords on their guitar and they're really writing and they're, they're recording. I think I just saw myself as kind of out group when it came to musicians. Now, interestingly, like all of my friends were musicians. So I was definitely like shadowing every musician. But so what I said to myself when I was graduating was, well, I love music and I do like business. So I'll go into the ding music business. Yeah. First job out of the gates was at a record label, which quickly led to me. I was there for a year, learned a ton, got kind of tricked into ad sales at a marketing company and I'm skipping over some stuff, but basically I got into ad sales selling to record labels and the music industry. And then later that led to me selling to kind of entertainment in general. So I was selling digital ad campaigns to labels, event promoters, movie studios, TV companies, brands, and everything in between and did pretty well, made it, made a good chunk of dough. And all the while was still kind of like at home writing And I don't know if you have any questions about the advertising specifically before I get into when the music thing started in earnest, but yeah, it was fun. Having written music for advertisements for the last 12 years, I have no remaining questions about it. Listeners, I apologize if you have those questions, but I'm fucking tired of it. Okay. So 2009, 2010, beginning of the Sam Outlaw music career, let's check in on spirituality and, and alcohol mm. use. So you weren't, you weren't drinking at college. I mean, we really didn't drink in our friend group. I remember I first drank beer with any kind of regularity at age 20 because Joe from Sherwood was 22 and he would occasionally get me like a Sam Smith's oatmeal stout from Trader Joe's. 
you know, it was not a big drinking culture. I'll let you speak for yourself. I did not drink the first three years of college. Okay. okay but then okay. when I turned 21, I remember, you know, it was the summer of 2021. I was, I stayed in Cal Poly or stayed in San Luis that summer. I was working at big five selling shoes. I, for, I went out with some friends for my 21st birthday, went out drinking, did the normal thing. And I picked up I would, I would call sort of regular early 20 year old drinking stuff. Yeah. But dude, I remember being a senior at Cal Poly and like definitely not being a daily drinker, but like I would go out and buy like vodka, which is insane. I like, I don't even think I drank vodka for this, but I would drink vodka and watch like reruns of shows in my house, invite friends over and serve them vodka. And we would just kind of get toasty and hang out. But so I want to be clear, my senior year when I was 21, I did start kind of drinking yeah. in earnest, doing what I would consider kind of more typical, common 21-year-old stuff. Yeah. Okay. So that's like around 21. So when you're in Long Beach starting up the band, you mentioned you're still at church at that point. So 25, 26-ish, mm -hmm. what's the situation with, has drinking progressed? What's the faith situation like at that point? So first of all, even though I was raised in a dry home with booze being super demonized by my father, I think, let's say, I think that there was also in the early 2000s, kind of this cultural, let's again, since we keep referencing books, these blue like jazz esque, that there's a lot of space in the kingdom. Right. And I think it was like when I just started drinking like a normal person at 21, I don't think first of all, it was very clear to me right off the bat that I was necessarily alcoholic. I knew from a young age, the one time maybe I got drunk at a party in high school, I remember my friend brought out this bottle of booze and I think they were going to serve me booze to get the Christian nerd drunk and embarrass me. Right. And instead, I just drank them all under the table, went out to my car, got my cutaway ovation and came back into the party and played Oasis songs for the next two hours, you know? <laughs> so I was, I had, I was able, I could really hold my liquor way more than other people. If you had two beers, I could probably have six yeah. and you'd be like, Oh, I don't, I don't remember Sam was drunk. You know, yeah. I think going into like the 2010 ish part of my, you know, when music was kind of starting to come up, I was going to a church in Long Beach, very much enjoying it. was very involved. I was uh, helping out in the, what do you call it? Sunday school with little, the little kids. Cause they needed help there. I was playing in the band Mm -hmm. And by, and what are we going to have here? We're going to have a repeat in some ways of what happened in Campus Crusade. So I was married. My wife went to church with me. And I remember in 2000, and I think it was early 2010, we kind of got separated. And I remember the worship leader calling me and saying, hey, Sam, so maybe it would be better if you just worshiped from the congregation. <laughs> that was the phrasing. That was the phrasing. So this was her way of saying, you're no longer one of us, kind of. Yeah. And by the way, again, I want to be clear. This person, I think, loved me yeah. and wanted the best for me. And even that, amazingly, even the way that was handled didn't deter me from not going to church. Yeah, I tried to go back. I started, after I'd gotten divorced, I started dating my now wife and I brought her to church with me. And her name's, my my wife's name is Andy. My ex-wife's name is Crystal. And folks were coming up to me and Andy and saying, hey, Sam. Oh, hi, Crystal. And I was like, ah, shit. Because they were both brunette women. Yeah. So I was like, this is too awkward. I can't come to a church that I was so involved in 
you'd think people would like recognize if the person I'm with is my wife or not. But you know what? I probably don't always get a good look at the people I'm talking to either. So whatever. But it was just awkward. I also noticed that once I was no longer married and once I'd gotten divorced, I never heard from a single person at that church ever again. Like I had a mentor who never called me ever again after he made it clear that he thought that what I was doing was wrong by getting divorced was wrong. The worship leader never called me, never texted me. The person, the people running the Sunday school never said, Hey, we've noticed that you haven't been coming and helping out in the Sunday school. So it was like, I was basically excommunicated in like a soft way. And by the way, man, again, I want to make it extremely clear. I don't think there was a conspiracy. I don't think there was ill will. I don't think anyone was sitting around going, that Sam guy's a real son of a bitch and we need to make him hurt. But the being kind of completely dropped just made me think, why am I doing this? Yeah. (laughs) I guess because I enjoyed the music in the morning. And sometimes the sermon reminds me that I should be selfless. Okay, that's helpful. But it was in 2010 that I stopped going to church. And again, genuinely not with like bitterness in my heart. I wasn't like the burned, you know, ex-evangelical. I just kind of was like, well, I can't keep going to this church where they keep thinking that my new girlfriend is my ex-wife. It's just too awkward. What would be really interesting, and we can't do the counterfactual, is how would each of these steps have been different for you if instead of being raised evangelical, then straight to Campus Crusade, then Mm -hmm. into another sort of evangelical church in L.A. area, like what if you had been raised Methodist or Episcopal or like Mm -hmm. mainline Protestant where there are gay priests and Mm – Half the congregation is divorced. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Like all that stuff. If we had gone to like the much smaller Christian fellowship, you know, of, you know, I feel like it's also worth noting, Dan, that church that I was going to, it was almost like, you know how there was like the show Saved by the Bell. And then it was like Saved by the Bell, the college years. This Uh would be like Saved by the Bell, the early adult years. It was like, I went from one kind of hip spiritual social club, like our church was hit, man. We had the regular attendees were in very successful bands. Yeah. There was like the look and feel and the vibe of the church did not feel like sort of a stale, embarrassing, like 80s approach to Christianity. It felt progressive, right? Because aesthetically, and, it was hip and up to date, just like the Jesus movement of the 70s was. I went out drinking on Saturday nights with the worship leader. Mm, yeah. So not just aesthetics. Yeah. I mean, she would pick me up for church on Sunday mornings because we lived close to each other. She would pick me up because we had to be there really, obviously, much earlier to like set up and sound check and blah, blah, blah. And she knew about my drinking and it was almost like a joke. Like, I remember one time I got in the car and I was like, hey, good news. I didn't drink last night. In other words, like, I'm not going to be hung over for once at church. Yeah. And she was like, oh, that's cool, man. So, again, like there was also there was sort of this openness. But but if you had come out as gay, for instance, that wouldn't have been yeah. the same thing as drinking. So there, which categories yeah, are yeah, we yeah. going to be soft on? Yeah. This is why I think these things are so cultural. So culturally, and I think that's really what I'm trying to say here, the cultural moment, whereas in the 80s and much of the 90s, it was if you drink, you're out group for our church. Right. That took a big shift in the early 2000s because of this relative moralistic kind of viewpoint. Well, I think that it's, I mean, first of all, Driscoll 
Mark Driscoll, one of the early things, you know, before kind of all the scandals and everything, but during his rise, it was like he swears and he talks yeah. about drinking beer. Yeah. And those were the those were things that he could do. Yeah. That would make him seem like a guy's guy. Yeah. And a young guy, a Gen X guy. Yeah. But he's still but man, his fundamentals on the gospel are sound. Right. There are some of these things that you can get away with at different times. And in some sense, I think that was needed because teetotaling is not, strictly speaking, a part of Christian, like mainstream Christianity over 2000 years. Like the majority of Eucharistic practice in Christian tradition has used wine. Wine, yeah. Like yeah. it's not, you know, it's in the Bible. They're drinking wine, yeah. you know, yeah. Jesus drank wine. So it's, that is good in terms of like, okay, well, let's decouple it from this kind of mm-hmm. legalism. But what's interesting in your story is like, that ends up becoming this, you know, very painful and damaging stream in your life. It's, and it's funny that they really came down on, don't have sex with your ex-girlfriend, <laughs> but like the drinking was fine. And then that ends up, you know, causing much more heartache than having sex with people. I would say by like 2006 and beyond, even premarital sex, I think got kind of lumped into this, like, yeah, maybe we don't love that you're doing that, but we're probably not going to make a big deal out of it. Now, if you're the yeah. pastor, that's not okay. Right. Of course. Yeah. But if you're just playing an electric guitar in the band, yeah, whatever. Yeah. We're not going to, you know. So again, all these things were very, I think they took them one thing at a time. And at least in my case, while I don't think it was done viciously or to damage me, the fact that I just never heard from any of those people ever again yeah. was definitely strange. And it made me kind of just definitely question, well, was I really a part of that thing? I thought I was a part of it. I felt like I was pretty involved. So, you know, I play music on the weekends. I book little shows at uh, clubs in Long Beach. I played all over Long Beach. And for a while there, I was also kind of like the only guy doing a more kind of traditional classic country thing. And obviously, um, drinking is a big part of advertising, being in that industry. So when yeah. I would take out when I take out clients, when I would go on work trips, I was spending like a quarter of the year probably in New York because I would I would always I would love to find time to go to New York because the company would pay for it and I could take I could entertain my clients and the company would pay for it. Yeah. So there was a lot of drinking in my career. And then there's a lot of drinking in my hobby. As you know, obviously booze, sex, drugs, rock and roll, the whole thing. Even if you're not a a rock star, you can still do the rock star stuff. And when I was in my early twenties, because I didn't even start really drinking in earnest till I was 21, I am still a very healthy, sort of physically healthy person. So I was able to bounce back from a night of drinking or a weekend of drinking so quickly. And everything I was doing in my twenties just simply looked like typical 20 something stuff. And I'm sure it was. Yeah. I mean, briefly, I, I do think that a lot of the sort of social circles that I've been a part of over the years, especially because of the band years, but even for people who did not sort of quote, make it on tour or whatever, there's almost like an entire personality of rock star type local Without mm. the without the rock star, without the notoriety, yeah. where it's like, yeah, you you these are the bars or clubs, and there's plenty of drinking, and we're kind of living, you know, as if that was our life, and mm-hmm. sometimes holding down jobs as well, um, 
you know, I'm not, I don't want to sound, that sounds a little bit more judgmental than I mean for it to come off, but like there is a whole kind of slacker, you know, you think about like the, the first 30 minutes of knocked up the, the mm-hmm. 2007 film, right. It's like, or Oh six, whatever it was like, that was, that was in the air, whether or not you were famous. And then yeah. if you were playing shows and if you have any reason to have drinks, like, Oh, let's drink before the show or after the show or whatever. And, and I, I've talked about this before, like, even our band, which was not a part of your band, like our, in, in our sort of touring circles, we were almost seen like dads compared sure. to uh, in our, even our mid twenties. Right. But, yeah, but yeah. we were like, not, we had gone to college and we were not huge partiers. Um, but even then I, I eventually year five or six of touring, uh, I had begun to find the benefits, short-term benefits of, of drinking before the show or drinking mm. afterward to be have the energy to talk to fans or mm-hmm. other bands and hang out uh, or industry people or whatever whatever night it was and like it is incredible how easy it is to rely on alcohol in that live music setting so yeah. that makes perfect sense to me and also i was making just way more money than any of my peers i mean mm-hmm. i by probably two or three years into my advertising gig i was making just way more money than them and so i was always the one with like the nice car the nice apartment i would bands would come into town on tour that i was friends with i would pay for their whole dinner so no one no one really also wanted to question my drinking or anything right. else because i was right. they were they were benefactors of my you know yeah. generosity my financial generosity and i also saw myself as very typical male American upbringing. If you're providing for yourself and for others, then that kind of puts you above reproach for other moral things. Interesting. Um, now, I yeah. doubt my my family members necessarily felt that way. Sure. But I, I definitely, like, even when I got sober, you know, a year and a half ago, almost all of my friends, their reaction was kind of like, whoa, I never, well, really, alcoholic, huh? And we can get into that later. But I, I just think, again... My spirituality, I think, was very common for the time. And I think my drinking, the beginnings of it, was also very common for what people in their 20s would do. Although I was probably tacking on a few more than maybe your average. If you love this podcast, if you find it helpful, I would love if you would consider joining the Patreon campaign. It is $7 a month. And it includes two, usually three, exclusive episodes per month for patrons only. It also includes ad-free episodes that sometimes even have a little bit more conversation in them that gets cut out of the main feed. And it includes access to the patron-only Facebook group. This 7 bucks a month uh, helps us pay for work from Kristen and Josh, as well as putting my own time into the show. I also love getting feedback from patrons of the show, questions to answer in question and answer episodes, and all kinds of just information from you guys, responses, feedback to help us make this thing better. And I just, I love, frankly, I love interacting uh, with people in the Patreon community. Most of that happens on Facebook, but I also will comment on posts on the Patreon app. And you get through Patreon You get this special feed that you can put into your regular podcast player that allows you to hear those patron-only episodes. You don't even have to go anywhere weird to hear them. It's all right there. It's very simple. And you can feel good. You can feel real good about supporting something 
basically DIY. This is something that we make ourselves. We're not connected to any corporation or company. Uh, and it's just very, very appreciated. If you sign up for a full year, you also get something like two months free. So that's another option. If you know you're going to be here for a while, you can also at any time go in and change to that, even if you are a regular monthly patron at this time. Okay, enough of me jabbering and asking for money. It's not comfortable to do, um, but I do truly, truly appreciate it. Okay, back to the episode. So then I think the next question is and answer either of these in whatever order. The question for Faith is, did you at some point sort of leave Christianity behind? And if so, when did that happen? And and at what point did the alcohol use become really like quite problematic and, and start getting in the way of your daily life? Yeah. I don't know that I ever left Christianity behind. I think I still consider myself a Christian in that my, let's at least say my understanding of what Christ teaches still feels like a pretty safe bet for me. Yeah. Now, was Christ a deity? Is Christ a deity? Maybe I'm a little more agnostic on that, mostly because I just don't want to fucking argue about it with people who are convinced he wasn't. (laughs) Please leave me alone. You guys are like theological terrorists. Um, But no, I, I think to some extent, though, I still pretty much the golden rule makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And this this notion that the meek will inherit the earth, I find it so annoying that it must be true. You know, because like my mm. I wake up every morning trying to increase my property, my prestige, and my power. Yeah. And then Christ's teachings are all say that's exactly what you shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. So the fact that that my instinct every single morning when I wake up is to do those things and Christ says do the other thing just makes it feel right <laughs> or something. So I think I stopped going to church, certainly didn't give up Christ or give up Christianity. Yeah. And then I think alcoholism, it seems to be pretty widely accepted that it's a progressive condition. Mm-hmm. If Since my grandpa was an alcoholic, it's I know that my, so my dad's dad, alcoholic, my mom's dad were pretty like 99% sure was also alcoholic. So I always, and being raised the way I was, I was already pretty paranoid about alcoholism. Mm-hmm. So I think that maybe helped me to every once in a while know how to tap the brakes. But as we kind of learn in recovery, there is no cure that even if you stop, when you start up again, your disease didn't stop, you know? And again, I've got a little bit of an issue calling it a disease, whatever. We don't need to take time to argue the semantics necessarily yeah, th- right now. There's different schools of thought yeah. around this, right? The the 12-step AA thing is is sort of the disease model once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. It's like yep. you never get rid of HIV, but you can take yep. Yep. pills that sort of keep it from becoming AIDS, right? Uh, there are other models too, but that's that's a, a very popular model. Yeah. In my experience so far, I've kind of become agnostic and on the is it a disease or not. I can tell you that yeah. when I treat it like a disease, I have relief. I have tremendous relief. And yeah. so whether it is or not, I really don't care. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it just all progressed along, Dan. I think it just progressed to progressed. I think it, most of the time I could, first of all, I could always point to some other friends or family and say, wow, those are alcoholics. Those people really are, you know, mm. but I think because I'd never gotten, I had all my yet, my list of yet. I hadn't gotten a DUI yet. I hadn't lost a job yet. I hadn't been left by a woman yet because of drinking. Because of drinking, yeah. Just because you were an asshole. Asshole, yeah. Yeah, it was just because I was a bad person. Um <laughs> But yeah, so I had my, and I continued to build a very protective layer, you know, drinking is my solution. So I, 
to me, the last thing I could ever imagine doing, even if I went through times where I was like, man, I got to quit drinking or I need to take a break. I got to take a break. I need to quit. I need, I could tell something was off. Drinking was my solution. So that was why I protected it like my little precious, you know, what was it solving? I think for me, booze is kind of the comfort button. So at the end of a long day, seven o'clock rolls around. Well, I don't want to have to continue to bear the burden of, you know, whatever I would been going through today. I want to push a button and feel better. Yeah. You know, as every addict will pretty much talk about everything, you know, everything works until it doesn't. It's amazing how trained our brain becomes for remembering what it feels like to have that first drink. That mm -hmm. first drink is really, really effective at doing the thing you wanted to do. But for an alcoholic, you seem to have, it's sometimes described as like a combination of like a physical allergy combined with like a mental obsession, which again, I don't feel like these words are super perfect, but they kind of get the job done. Yeah, I can say for me, I don't think in my life I ever had a drink. That, that like, hmm. like I watched nor I mean, in the rooms, we'd call them normies or like non-alcoholics. I, I watched normies drink and the way they'll like, someone will pour them a glass of wine and they'll like kind of sip at it and then kind of forget it's there and then go do something else, then come back and, oh yeah, is that mine? I don't know. Is that like, I watch these people and go, what in God's name are you doing? How are you not wanting to get into a bathtub of martini? You know? Hmm. So I just... I've seen normal people drink. And even though I think my behavior at that phase wouldn't necessarily, it didn't, I, th I thought it didn't qualify me for yeah, uh, sure. a sobriety program. I think I was always a little different for sure. Mm. I've always felt that way about people who could go without eating. Mm. Not because I want to drown myself in a bucket of chicken wings or anything. Right. Like I, I haven't, I haven't had that much struggle with sort of binge eating or eating disorder stuff, Yeah, but like, if my wife is working all day on something, she'll forget to eat. And I'm like, I, I just literally cannot conceive yeah. of that. Like I will think to eat. I, yeah. I love it. It'll eating. get there. It'll get there. It doesn't yeah. matter what I'm working on. I will take a five minute break and shove a sandwich in my face. Like I will eat. So I, I can kind of relate to that, but not necessarily on the drinking side. I didn't drink a lot of beer because beer to me, it just didn't get the job done. You know, yeah. I just like, usually if you saw me drinking a beer is because I'd already had, you know, six whiskeys mm. and I knew it was time to like stop, but I couldn't stop. So I would try to slow down. I'd tap down. the brakes a little but Yeah. So I don't, I don't know quite where you want this to head, but I think when it started affecting my life, I mean, certainly in my first divorce, yeah. Um, I think I was struggling. My mom passed away unexpectedly in 2013. I was actually yeah, right. on tour when it happened. And even though I, I hadn't become a full-time musician yet, I was still working a full-time job in advertising, but I, I just happened to be on tour and my mom died. And I, I can tell you that what I didn't do is stop to feel my feelings. Yeah, I did not stop to grieve even after my divorce in 2010 even though I did some soul searching and I was in therapy, I did lots of therapy. You know, the easiest thing in the world is to lie to your therapist about how much you're drinking or using or whatever. So yeah. I think it majorly affected uh, my life. Like I remember when I was in 2010, that yeah, was 2010. It was my golden birthday. I was turning 28 on the 28th and I had a pretty much a nervous breakdown. And I'm pretty sure that wouldn't have happened if I wouldn't have been drinking to the extent that I was. I remember when I started having the anxiety attack, I'd only recently started having some anxiety attacks, didn't quite know what they were. 
And this was basically just an anxiety attack. And I remember I got home from lunch and I tried drinking a little whiskey to calm myself down. And when that didn't work, it was really terrifying. It was like, oh, this is the next level of something's wrong. And um, after that was when a doctor prescribed uh, Xanax. But yeah, so I think um, the way it really started affecting me is in my central nervous system. I think uh, whatever susceptibility I have to depression and anxiety, it was like pouring tons of gasoline on that fire. Yeah. Before I got into uh, recovery, I just genuinely believed that I had an anxiety disorder and a de- and a, maybe a depression uh, disorder, and maybe I do a little bit. Well, but- you don't have to have those lifelong. You, you can have it for a while, and it can you can exactly. not have it anymore. Yeah. But I don't think it's a co- some strange coincidence that almost to the minute that I stopped drinking alcoholically, my anxiety and depression has leveled off to the point where it's virtually, virtually non-existent. Uh, yeah. we're, we're kind of rushing ahead here a little bit, but that's maybe the, the, the thing that sobriety has given me the most is I wake up every morning, mostly feeling good. I go through my day mostly feeling good. And when I have dips and I, and I get to a little bit of a depressive place, instead of me pouring booze on it and it turning into a month or two months sort of roller coaster ride, it maybe lasts, let's call it at most three or four days. And then it kind of lifts. Mm-hmm. And I get, I go back to more of like a somewhere between a three and a seven. So I think that's the main thing. It was really messing up my central nervous system. And I, I think I knew that in my late 20s. And then I drank for another about 12 years before I said, okay, maybe I've had enough. In terms of spirituality. So as I understand it, you've been doing like the sort of 12 step approach, right? To 12 step. Yep. Yep. That's right. And so all the 12 step programs, you know, include this language of a higher power. Mm -hmm. And there's, especially these days in a pluralistic setting, there's a a lot of caveats there. There's a lot of ways I've spent time in uh, some 12 step groups for the partners of, of addicts, um, Mm -hmm. which I I don't share a lot of details about that because I try and keep uh, those people yeah, of course. Out, out of it. But I, but I, I've, you know, I've, I've been to maybe 10, 10 or so meetings and you know, there, the higher power language, there's at least in the Seattle area, it's heavily caveated so that people are not sort of pushed away and think that this is like a religious zealotry kind of a thing, right. Which is makes perfect sense to me, but in the sort of pure form of the, of the 12 step approach, you are meant to draw on the higher power and as I understand it, it's it's basically a source of fuel that, you know, uh, God or however we God, as we understand him, for some people, the higher power, can it itself be the group of other people? It's still something greater than myself. It's kind of this reservoir of, of strength that aligns with my values that sort of helps me have uh, the fuel and the strength to stay sober, essentially. Is that basically how you understand the role of your own faith in that? Or would you nuance that at all? I mean, I think that you said it right in that the 12 step is so insanely inclusive. Like as basically the diagnostic is question one, do you think you're God? Yes or no? (laughs) No. Great. You're in. You know what I mean? Right, right. Or maybe it's a maybe it's at most two questions. Do you think you're God? No. Do you think there is a power that is greater than you yourself? Yes. Great. You're in. So yeah. it's maybe a two-step, 
two question diagnostic. It's literally that inclusive. I hear time and time and time again in the rooms from people who are both currently atheists or people who used to be atheists or who were agnostics or who are agnostics, but who find some sort of higher power that is simply beyond themselves that somehow through some magic, and I'm I'm using that word almost literally, like we really don't understand why the 12 step works. We get to a room, we all talk about our experience and we leave and we work some steps, but it's almost that inclusive. And so, yeah, I think it seems like there are, I, I don't want to speak for other people's experiences, but from the stories I heard in the rooms, there are a lot of people who spend some time dismantling the spirituality they grew up with. They sort of have to like fire their previous higher power yeah. to then hire one that will be helpful. Um, and that's why the book always has that caveat, God, as you understand God, or as, or as a sponsor of mine used to say, God, as I do not understand him, because <laughs> like that. Yeah. as someone pointed out also like Einstein didn't understand God. So it's not looking good for me, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, yeah, man, I have to say it is probably the purest form of spirituality that I've ever been involved with. And because unlike church, there's no power to gain in a 12 step. There's no power. Yes. There's no prestige. There's no hierarchy. You can't be the, you can't be in charge. My limited experience in these groups, they, they've always been held in, in churches, you know, on like weeknights or whatever yeah. in, in these various rooms. And it's been really interesting to compare and contrast it with church services that are mm -hmm. also held in those same buildings. <laughs> and I've often thought like there is some pure form of like what religion can do here with the, with no hierarchy, but also the, the thing where you don't interrupt people and you don't give them advice Mm. like that is so interesting. It's worth contrasting maybe with, you know, kind of the evangelical thing we had growing up and, and that we experienced in college. It's very prescriptive. There is yeah. certainly, and you know, you talk about purpose driven life or especially every man's battle, the kind of purity culture stuff, which is very prescriptive, very outcome oriented. Mm -hmm. We've got to have this particular outcome. We got to keep ourselves pure. And what I love about, the openness in a, in a 12 step situation is like everyone gets a chance to talk if they want to. And the rest of us are not allowed to say mm -hmm. anything other than basically, thanks for coming. Uh, mm -hmm. At the end, there's a bit of freedom if you want to engage with someone, but if they want to leave, they can leave and you don't get to say anything to them. And that is like so different, but yeah. yet feels, it feels really right to me in a lot of ways. I have to say, growing up, going to so much church and now experiencing a 12-step, I have more probably virtually almost every day that I get to a meeting think to myself, this is not that hard. Why couldn't denominational church adopt a similar format so that they can actually do the work that they think they're doing? But yeah, I've had that thought. And of course, Part of me is like, well, I'm just going to consider myself lucky that I'm here and not try to think about how I could use this to fix anything else. But um, you're right. All you can do is there's typically a timer. So you've got two to three minutes to share. There's no quote unquote, the, the phrase they use is crosstalk, which means I can't say, hey, Sarah, when you just shared, um, all I can do is address the group. Yeah. Again, there's there's even the steps they are considered suggestions. It, they always use the word suggestion. 
And it really simply is. Now, I would say the big difference is, and the pivotal difference um, that led to this 12-step being born is that it is sick people helping other sick people. So there's no person who's like, hey, I had this sort of burning bush moment and that made me the king. Yeah. And now I'm going to show you like sort of sad, sick people the way there is no one showing there's no healthy person really showing other sick people the way it's sick people showing sick people the way. And I just don't know why it works. I and I'm I'm probably never going to figure it out. Hmm. And I just don't care either, because strangely, if I just do the stupid thing, then it works. And that's as far as I really cared to go with it. But that, I would say, is maybe the biggest distinction. Like you said, it's someone sharing their experience. It's never someone saying, here's what you should do. Here's how you should do it. Here's why you need to do it. And it's never someone saying, here's what I've learned. And here's why you need to do this also. Now, if you want to say, here's here's what I've learned in a meeting, you can certainly do that. But the, the, then it's not, okay, well, let's take a vote and make sure this is what we should all do. And right, okay, now right. we all have to. So You mentioned people having to sort of fire their old higher power. And the way yeah. that I would think about that sort of from a therapeutic perspective is like, if the goal is to remain sober and the old higher power is not helping you do that, then you need one that's going to help you do that. And it made me think of some of the stuff you said early on, you know, like, door a door-to-door rep for for christ and christianity Hmm. you know the only jesus that some kids will ever see by the way i I did know your mother and and your dad Hmm. and really wonderful people just throwing that in there thanks because i happen to have some inside info um we we stayed with them many many times during our early touring years and we were thoroughly poor (laughs) uh i wrote i have memories of writing uh one of our songs lake tahoe on on your parents front doorstep um i love that song but you know, I'm wondering if you had uh, versions of God that you had to fire. It, it would it would seem to me that that kind of pressure, that uh, sort of that poster child pressure, we might call it, to use that other phrase, that kind of persisted for you all the way through 2010 or so, really through the dissolution of your first marriage. That that those messages from that higher power would not be very helpful. Uh, for working a 12-step program? Man, I think every single day I have to wake up and surrender poster boyism. You know, mm. I think I think to some extent that way of seeing my life as I am as in this example, like one, one of the sayings we have in the rooms is that um, I'm just a bozo on another bozo on the bus. Uh, or another thing they'll say is, hey, uh, so it's uh, easy does it. That's one of the things you'll see in the walls. You'll also see, um, you'll hear people say, chop wood and carry water. All these things are basically saying, you are not special. Hmm. Stop trying to be something other than just another bozo on the bus. Like uh, something in the book says something about being a friend among friends. So to some extent, again, like I want to be clear, I think to, to raise up a kid to be able to nurture their leadership abilities and skills, that is a good thing. But I I have found it to be more spiritually healthy and more contributing to my spiritual fitness to not see myself actually as a leader, but to just see myself as a friend among friends, a worker among workers, another bozo on the bus. I mean, I was also raised with a family member constantly saying, lead, follow, or get out of the way. Mm. And you know what? I get I get where that comes from. I get it. 
I don't think that's necessarily in and of itself a harmful mentality. But kind of the implied thing is, well, leadership would be the best thing. Yeah. And then way behind that kind of for the losers is being a follower. And then if you don't want to do either of those things, then get the out of here. Right. So that's kind of the implied messaging leader, good follower, like second way distant second. It sounds like something Mark Driscoll would have said in a staff meeting, frankly. It's it's very much a John Wayne sort of thing. Again, I think these things are said with good intentions. I think that these things are said um, with a sort of virtue in mind. Sure. But, but, but they could still be wrong for yeah, in, most, in most situations. Yeah, I agree. Um, so for me, Dan, the 12-step program has not fostered my leadership abilities. It's made me simply – so if, you know, if your readers or listeners, rather, are familiar with the 12 steps, a big part of it is taking your own moral inventory mm-hmm. and going through the, the ways in which – your side of the street has not been clean in your relationships, in your experiences. And first of all, no one wants to do that. You know, it's not like just alcoholics that are like, oh, that seems like a lot of work. Like no one would want to do that. But that is one of the things that evangelicalism prepared a lot of us to do at least decently well, because we did start to develop a sense of culpability and responsibility for our own moral choices. In some cases, as in purity culture, too much responsibility too much, for right. those for those choices. And that's, again, finding that mean. Uh, but the responsibility is good. In my experience in churches, when when there was a someone with a moral failure, it was very rarely like the pastor coming out on Sunday and saying, here's something I've been struggling with, me specifically. Mm. It was like he would talk like um, theoretically about sin or moral issues. But then when that pastor actually had a moral issue – it was like, and now he's stepping down. Like this pastor had an affair and now he's stepping down. This pastor got caught looking at pornography and now he's stepping down. It was never like this person we have confirmed now, like we always knew they were imperfect, but we didn't quite know how. Now that we know the specifics of their imperfection, this motherfucker is being cast out. Yeah, And I think that's um, to me, like you can't get kicked out of the 12 step uh again you can't become a general like the leadership positions are just service positions and then yeah. you get sw- you get swapped out really quickly i think that for me like i grew up the messaging was not so much be good for goodness sake it was be good because of the way it affects other people and because of the way it affects your standing in society so a lot of that messaging to me from a young age was not necessarily be good, but well, just don't get caught being bad. You know, that, that was kind of like the the ultimate incentive structure in a lot of those situations. That's that's right. That's why for me, when I finally went to my first sobriety meeting, I felt like I was turning myself into the cops. Hmm. Tell me about that first meeting. Say a little bit more about that. I had come home from a, a international tour. I, I did pretty good on the road, didn't drink that much, didn't make some of the other mistakes I used to make, came home kind of feeling like I could take a victory lap, got uh, nice and drunk at home, mixed in a little weed, and um, acted absolutely pathetically immorally at home. And when the dust settled from it, decided, okay, I guess this is the end of the fun. It's time yeah. to turn myself into the cops. I remember it was the grayest, rainiest, most depressing fucking day in Nashville. And I found this Tuesday noon meeting. I drove my car there and I saw 
a couple people, you know, running from the rain to get in the most depressing looking church building I've ever seen. And I went in there and won the lottery. I mean, and that's the funny thing too, is like that first meeting, they they have a group conscious at this meeting. I consider this kind of my home group. Now the group conscience is if when they ask people at the beginning of the meeting, if anyone would like to introduce themselves, if anyone's new, if there's any visitor or whatever, they ask a few questions. If there is anyone who it's their first meeting or if it's their first meeting back after a relapse, yeah. then the, the topic of the discussion automatically becomes the first step, which is basically mm-hmm. to admit that we're powerless over alcohol, that our lives become unmanageable. Yeah. And so because I was present, it became a first step meeting. And I, I heard all these people in the room share their experiences with drinking. And even though... All, I didn't have the exact same experience of all those people. The feeling right away was, well, Sam, for the first time, you're in the right place, buddy. You've come to the right place. And so that was the beginning of uh, recovery was that first meeting for sure. I've been looking for a time to share some of this research. This is it's still a little bit ham fisted. I'm getting better at figuring out how to do this organically. But I, I did want to share for listeners here briefly, you know, I just kind of surveyed Google Scholar and looked for larger studies, reviews of multiple studies. And I just want to talk a little bit about the efficacy of 12-step treatments, as well as the role of spirituality in them. So yeah. this is not going to be as fun conversationally, but but feel free to jump in after each of these. Might, it might want. be more fun. might be more fun. <laughs> Trust me, it won't be. Uh, okay, a okay. recent meta, rev- meta review of 27 studies with over 10,000 participants found that AA and clinically delivered 12-step treatments performed as well as all other major substance use disorder treatments, and it did better than other treatments for long-term abstinence, and it demonstrated lower healthcare costs overall. That last one is really interesting. I've been interning at a at a pay what you can therapy clinic for the last year and mm. there are a fucking lot of Americans who do not have a bunch of money to spend <laughs> on inpatient treatment or therapy or whatever and the fact that AA performs as well as other substance use things and it's fucking free mm. that is incredible and like you were talking about it's all volunteer service positions And then often churches, usually churches, but sometimes community centers and other buildings who will let their, you know, rooms be used. But that alone is fantastic. So it's, it's always something I'll ask clients if substance use sounds like it might be a part of what they're dealing with is if they've tried it because it's free. It really is crazy. We had, we had a meeting the other day at the end of the month, they'll typically do a special um, sobriety anniversary meeting, sometimes called a birthday meeting, which I find to be confusing terminology, um, for, especially for a newcomer. But a birthday meeting just means if within this month, you got a year or two years or five yeah. years or 10 years, then you've got a little extra time to tell your story if you want to. Yeah. And at this particular meeting the other day, there was only two people that shared. I think one was getting a two or three year chip. One was getting an 11 year chip. And, you know, they pass a bucket around, you can throw in a buck or two, or you can Venmo. And I think usually for a meeting, I Venmo a couple bucks. And the level of relief that I felt from hearing these two people's stories told, to think that I used to spend $200 a session for a therapist to talk to me about the things I wanted to talk about, all the while nursing active addiction. Yeah. Not that it even needs to be compared, but Dan, 
it is essentially free. I mean, no one, like if you never gave a dollar, no one would say, Hey man, you need to start throwing in for this coffee. Like, right. So it, it essentially is free. And and you're right. I, I often at meetings come away kind of like my heart exploding and going, my God, did I really just spend two bucks to have what it feels like have my life rechanged all over again in that last 58 minutes? It's crazy. I don't get it. So according to the National Institutes of Health, Sam, uh, <laughs> research shows that 12-step programs utilize multiple mechanisms to help members. So there's social tools, right? Mm-hmm. There's that connecting with each other, with your sponsor, cognitive tools, similar stuff that I do in, in cognitive therapy with clients, emotional or affective tools. So stuff that kind of focuses on uh, emotions around mm-hmm. drinking or post-drinking or whatever, and feeling close to group members. And then of course, spirituality and higher power language. And what they've found is that different members will utilize these tools in Mm. different ways. So Sam, you're an example of someone for whom the spirituality aspect has been absolutely vital, Mm -hmm. but there might be people for whom that's really the bottom of the list, but they're still getting the benefit from the other tools. I thought that was kind of interesting to kind of lay out four categories of, of tools that people are being equipped with. But all I can say is for a sick person hanging out with other sick people, there still seems to be some sort of weird magic taking place that doesn't quite fit any of those categories either. So totally. I'm, I'm, I'm both like, wow, those all ring a bell. And also that doesn't even come close to describing what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, well, that's the thing we description should not be reduction. That's right. Right. And, and this is a tricky thing, I think for therapists and, and for people who are interested in faith as well is like, we can talk about, mechanisms and we can actually do really careful research mm-hmm. so that we are delivering the best possible care to people but that we should not think that we can reduce human experience down to that kind of language and sort of fully demystify it and i don't want to fully demystify it because it would not you be know, so interesting and meaningful anymore i mean almost to the thing where it's like you know to some folks early on, I think it might be some somewhat disappointing to find out that the 12 step is not there to teach you how to drink. It's not there to teach you how to drink like a gentleman, quote unquote. It's not there to teach you how to drink in moderation. Hmm. It is to, it actually instructs you to just simply avoid the first drink for 24 hours. Hmm. Um, but that's disappointing for some folks because they don't, they, they want to be able to obviously drink like other normal people do. And, yeah. um, in the same way that it might be after a year or two or three or however many years in the program, they might find themselves disappointed that they haven't learned why this works for me, maybe not so much. I just, like I said, um, kind of like the magic of love. I mean, if we're going to get something that we want to write a lot of songs about and you can write songs about it, you can try to explain it, But it just, none of it quite captures uh, the thing that's happening there. But one day, perhaps through science or otherwise, maybe one day we'll get there. And um, that'd be cool too. Yeah, it's it's a really, it's it's a deep and interesting question for me because kind of my job as a therapist, I, I think is in part to engage with the most careful research to be able to use the most effective tool for each client when they need it. 
not that I am their savior and not that their betterment and improvement is a result of my work, but it is collaborative. And so like you're talking about my side of the street being clean, right? Mm -hmm. That's, I know, I understand the relational context of that, but there's, there's a relationship to therapy as well. And so when are we being most careful and, and most responsible with the power that someone is giving us by seeing us for therapy? And when are we dipping too far into pre pretending to be masters of the universe and sort of demystifying everything down to its component parts? <laughs> I, and again, I, I think there is probably a finding the golden mean kind of situation yeah. because you got to have a, some of both. And leaning too heavily on one or the other seems to me like the the ball going into the gutter. Mm -hmm. It's tough. Anyway, I'll just I'll I won't go into the spirituality research, but I'll just say there's a bunch of research that spirituality helps with substance use, and there's some really interesting stuff around uh, indigenous Americans mm -hmm. and how people are kind of trying to develop like indigenous specific treatments that are pulling from the spiritual cultures because mm. all of these, all of those cultures are inherently spiritual and utilizing that just super interesting. I, I'll want to read more about that as, as more comes out. Mm. And then there's also stuff around ethnicity. That's interesting. Like um, spirituality and religiosity are, are even more important for black Americans than other Americans in terms of recovering from alcohol and other drug problems. So hmm. just kind of, just kind of cool stuff, like the role that this plays. It's not surprising to me though, because as I said earlier, well, I, I didn't say this part earlier. So in my spiritual abuse research, I have a, a analogy that I like to use, which is that religion is like nuclear fission. Hmm. Nuclear fission is this process that eventually human beings were going to figure out and we figured it out and we can make nuclear power plants using this, this thing we can split the atom and create all this energy. And when we do it right, it is the cleanest and most abundant source of energy that the earth has ever known. And when things go wrong, we have nuclear fallout and everything mm -hmm. is irradiated in a 20 mile radius. Mm -hmm. And it's just massive destruction mm -hmm. at, at, for hundreds of years <laughs> until, mm -hmm. you know, that stuff, like you still can't go to Chernobyl, right? Yeah. Like, so that is, and, and religion is like that religion and spirituality, they deal with the sort of innermost, most important, most valuable, mm -hmm. most combustible things about being human. So to not utilize that for literally a life or death situation to me, is, it seems like folly unless you can't utilize it because of various wounds or experiences or whatever, mm. or if it just doesn't make sense to you in some way, fine. But it's like, use it. It, it, it is mm -hmm. there, but that's why we need healthy religion, healthy spirituality to be able to use that for various kinds of recovery from substance use, but also trauma, also just shitty upbringings, various kinds of wounds that have been inflicted on us or, or by ourselves over the years. Um, that's, that's kind of how this conversation ties into sort of my spiritual abuse research program and all that stuff. Yeah, man, I'm tracking with all of that. I think, um, that's why it's so probably imperative. Like, I think one of the reasons maybe it is so effective is because the, the asterisk for higher power is always higher power of your own understanding. 
Mm-hmm. I think there's something, the inclusivity of all that just somehow, it just gets, it, it, it works, I guess is the word I would use. It just, it works. Yeah. Um, there, there's nobody telling me how to, how to do it. Are there any specific practices that you lean on more than others that you're comfortable talking about in terms of utilizing that spirituality? Yeah, I have to go to a meeting really kind of every day. I've just, um, I've noticed that for me, the action of going to a meeting, like usually um, if I go to a meeting and then talk, so for me, it's three things a day, go to a meeting every day, try to do at least like a five minute meditation and then call my sponsor mm-hmm. every single day. And um, usually if I do call my sponsor he'll, and he says, you know, how's, how's the morning going? If I say I went to a meeting, he'll usually just simply say, oh, well, good job treating your alcoholism today. Um, it's just that simple. And I think for me, the action of going to a meeting is like maybe the one way that I can show that I don't think I'm God. Like if someone asks me on a test, do you think you're God? It's going to be no every time. Like I know I'm not God, but if my behavior throughout the day doesn't include something to treat my alcoholism, what I'm basically showing by my actions is that I actually really don't think I'm an alcoholic. Because I didn't actually do anything different that would show that this is something that needs to be treated. So, um, and like, for instance, the other day I was on my porch drinking a coffee, kind of just having a really beautiful morning. It's the four day weekend. And I see I've got my normal 10 a.m. meeting for the weekend coming up. And yeah, I don't want to go. I just don't. I don't want to get up from this seat. Yeah. And then then the thought occurred to me, well, you're kind of supposed to go every day. Maybe you should go. And then I thought, you know what? It's not that big a deal to me. I'm just going to do what I'm doing right here, which is enjoying some coffee. I'm just going to do it in another place. I'm just going to go sit in a room with other sick people and drink my coffee. So that was enough to get me off my butt. I walked over. It was like the second. So I didn't have the willingness, I guess, is my point. I didn't want to. The second my coffee went from the home mug to the to-go mug, the willingness appeared. Mm. Does that make sense? Like We grew up yeah. with um, this uh, faith without works is dead mentality you know, that was often quoted and and the sobriety program actually does basically make a similar reference on a regular basis and all i can tell you is that i've noticed for me that it is easier to act myself into the way that i want to think than it is for me to think myself into the way that i want to act um that's a convenient little turn of phrase there but i love it's, it it strangely works so for me the just the daily reprieve nature of the 12 step the fact that it is a simply you are sober for 24 hours at a time you are skipping one drink per day for just a day and for me it is the action of going to a meeting that almost sums it up completely yeah it i just it's like it's i just show up that is it. That's my spiritual program now is I pretty much put on pants and go to a, a meeting. I could tell you about prayer and meditation. I could tell you about the other steps about having conscious contact with God and all that stuff. I don't know that any of that really makes a big of an impact is simply when I just go to a meeting, which is also why when I started, um, when I changed my life a little bit, and now I start my day with a meeting in the morning, I mean, Dan, you probably remember, I mean, from college, I'm not a morning person. I do not like getting up early. I just not my thing. And I don't know what is the bigger miracle these days. The fact that I don't drink or the fact that I get up to go to a morning meeting. I'd really, <laughs> I can't say what seems like the bigger um, change, but so for me, man, that's the, the new normal, I guess. Man. Fantastic. Uh, we've, you've given me extra time. We've gone long. We'll, we'll end it there. 
obviously people can listen to Sam Outlaw anywhere they listen to music. Is there a particular like web link or social media or something that you want us to put in the notes? Uh, I guess I could give you just samoutlaw.com because that links people to everything. Great. Do that. Yeah, man. Man, thanks so much, man. What a great conversation. Thank you, Dan. And I'll say again, man, you are still the person I remember from college, a very thoughtful, interested, interesting, smart, deep individual. And I think that your work you're doing on spiritual abuse is incredibly relevant to me and people our age that grew up um, sort of being murdered by good intentions. And um, thanks for doing that work. And I actually look forward to following your work and tracking it because it's it's all right up my alley and my wife's interests as well. So appreciate it, man. 